Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Shelley Flower. And today on the show, we're going to talk about the standard clauses that you should be aware of when you're about to sign the standard Real Estate Institute of New Zealand and Auckland Law District Society contract. And of course, we are again joined by Shelley Fennell from Henderson Reeves Lawyers. Now, in the last episode, we talked about the changes that had come into the Ryans and ALDS contract, which is the standard contract that is used for purchasing property in New Zealand. But let's talk more generally about the clauses that are in there. If you've never seen one before, or even if you have, perhaps you might not have seen it for a couple of years, or you might not have read it properly, which is in some cases. Um, so there are a number of clauses in here. We're going to talk about the really uh, really most important ones. So let's start with a standard one, Shelley, like solicitor's approval. Talk to us about what this is and, and when it can be invoked. So there's not a standard solicitor approval condition in the agreement. You would add one if you wanted. There's a lot of case law out there about uh, the limited circumstances in which a solicitor approval a solicitor could choose to withhold their approval. So if there's a clause that says the solicitor can only withhold approval on the basis of the form and the content of the agreement, that basically means unless there's something wrong with the agreement, like an error in the agreement, that's the only basis on which we can withhold approval. So a lot of people think if they've got a solicitor's approval clause in there, they can just pull out for any reason. They can just say to their solicitor, please don't approve that agreement. That is not the case. So I, we d- we can draft them wider so that we can withhold approval on the basis of other aspects of the agreement. So that's preferable. And again, go and talk to your solicitor before, before you sign the agreement and make sure you can have a wide one. And would somebody only use a solicitor's approval clause if if they're signing a contract before they've shown it to their solicitor? I think so. I uh, most people wouldn't put it in a standard a standard agreement because they if they have selected limb, they've selected finance, they've selected building inspection. There's a title condition contained in the agreement, so if there's any issues with the title, the lawyer can raise those. So ordinarily, in a straightforward agreement, you might not have that solicitor approval. It's generally only if it's it's more complicated and they haven't had the chance to talk with their lawyer. Most often, I think it's better if you're putting a solicitor approval cl- condition and then you probably need a due diligence as well because it shows that it's probably a bit complicated. Interesting. And hey, there are just two things I want to pick up on before we move on to the next clause. And and the takeaway, or my point is this, you know, if you're sitting at home listening to this, um, don't draft conditions or clauses yourself. I've talked to a couple of lawyers and they say, God, the worst thing is when somebody tries to draft their own their own clauses in their contract because they think it's a good idea, um, it's, it's just never a good idea. And this comes back to something that Shelley and I were actually discussing just before we hit record for the podcast, which is that generally the average person in New Zealand, uh, you know, unless you're, you're doing property investment full time, might only buy f- five properties in their lifetime. But Shelley, how many properties would you would you oversee in a week? Uh, uh, probably a dozen, if not more. So, so Shelley's yeah. going to going to going to look at you know more than twice of the number of contracts in a week than most people will will look at in their lifetimes when it comes to sale and purchase agreements for property. Uh, and so, a, a good lawyer will will do everything they can to to give you as much protection as possible uh, and give you as much flexibility as possible. So, don't 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 try and draft your own clauses as well because and, that's and not necessarily rely on the agent as well to uh, pop a clause in, what we often see is there's a copy and paste from another 
another agreement with some incorrect references. So, yeah. Not good. So we've, so we've talked about the solicitor's approval clause. Let's talk about um, the building inspections uh, clause. So building inspections, if someone's buying an existing property, we always obviously recommend you go and get a building inspection under uh, the, the previous standard agreement uh, you had t- uh, 10 working days to get that done. They've extended it to 15 working days, which I actually think is correct because often we do have to delay, especially uh, when builders are really busy doing inspections all over the place. So it gives you 15 working days to get that builder through and then you get a report. If you've got some issues with it, it can give you time to negotiate the price if that's what you want to do, if you want to reduce the price uh, and your lawyer helps can help you do that. And then obviously you can confirm or or um, not satisfy the condition. If you do pull out for a building inspection uh, report, it's always been the case that the vendor can come back to you and they say, I'd like a copy of that report and you're obliged to send it to them. And that often trips people up, They especially if they've had a building inspector through the property and they haven't actually given them a written report. It might be a mate, it might be a brother or someone that is a builder and they've come through and inspected it, but they don't actually have a written report. And are there certain... Um are there only certain cases where a building inspection report could trigger a purchaser to pull out of it? It doesn't happen. Uh, it, it doesn't happen that often, but there's really no gauge for what you can pull out on either. So it doesn't have to be a major issue. You might just. Um, you might just think you didn't really like the tiles on the roof or whatever or there were some problems with it that needed to be repaired. So I don't know how major that issue has to be, but it's normally pretty major before people pull out. There's a lot of roof. People pull out a lot for roofs because obviously the consequences of having to replace a roof can, could be really, really expensive. Yes, it could be extremely expensive. Let's let's talk about limb now. So there's a, there's a limb clause in there, and uh, you, you had an interesting point that I wasn't aware of before, the, before we hit record. What was that? So often purchasers think that the solicitor orders the limb from the council, so we don't. It's up to the purchaser to do that. You need to pay for it with the council, and also... As a purchaser, you want that limb addressed to you as the purchaser of the property. And basically, that's almost like an insurance policy because if it turns out there's something wrong with the limb later and the council's put incorrect information, then you're going to want to go back to the council with your report in your name and say, you've breached your duty of care to me and I relied on it. So we, you actually want to be able to order it. We don't have any capacity for ordering it either, but we do review them. So as soon as you get the limb report, you flick it to your solicitor. We're not town planners, so we can't necessarily comment on the town planning, but things like unconsented works or um, we'll look at that. Interesting. And and Lim, just for everybody at home, is land information memorandum. You order it from the council, and that's basically all of the, all of the documents that, that uh, council has on that property for, for you to review. Now, if council does, uh, you know, say it was that use case that you just talked about before, where you want it to be addressed to you so that if there was incorrect information on it, you can go back to council and say they've breached their duty of care, what would happen in that situation? Uh, a court case, probably. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not something I've tested. I know in Tauranga they've had that issue with Bella Vista where they've gone back because the council gave them incorrect information. So it really is just 
a lit- litigation process, you'd go back to the council and ask for some compensation for damages and then just see where you get to. But you're going to be in a stronger position if you've got that limb addressed to you. Yes, yes, yes. And I think with a, with a lot of these uh, agreements as well and clauses that we're talking about, it's it's everything you can do to protect yourself so that in the event that something did go majorly wrong, this is your insurance policy, this is your protection, uh, so that so that you're not put uh, in a position where, where you would be severely strained because it is such a major financial decision. And we also always recommend that you go and get the property file, so you can order that online from the council as well, and that'll give you all the information to do with the property that's on, on file there, so we definitely recommend you do that as well. Now the next one that we were going to look at was, it's not necessarily a clause, but a tip from Shelley about making sure that the parties' names are correct on the agreement. I was so surprised, Shelley. Does this actually happen? It, it does happen. It especially happens with trusts as well, or just people don't know sometimes whose name their property is registered in. If you've got a good agent, then they're going to get a copy of the title and they're going to make sure that's right. And I guess the other thing about names is making sure that when you put a purchaser name, there's a there's a possibility that you can have and or nominee, which means that you can sign an agreement as one person and then you can nominate it to you and your husband, for example, and you can buy it together. So it's always best if that's not crossed out. And I think this is particularly important for property investors where you may you may sign the contract as yourself, so I might sign it as Ed McKnight, but uh, it, you may structure it in a trust or you may structure it in a look-through company or however you want to do that, and this will give you the flexibility to then talk to your solicitor or your tax accountant and figure out, well, what is the, the, the most beneficial structure for me to hold this property in, but you've still got it into, under contract. Um, so let's talk now about the deposits because it's interesting because obviously a developer, especially if you're buying it off the plans, or, um, will want you to to give your deposit on signing. Uh, but obviously you want to, uh, generally the purchaser would want it on unconditional. So talk to us about this, uh, this clause, Shelley. Yeah, so there's no default in the ordinary sale and purchase agreement. So it really, well, there, there is a deposit default in the agreement that it's upon signing but we would always say to our purchasers um, put wording in the front of the page in the on the front page that the deposit is payable once you've satisfied your conditions and then two last ones we're going to talk about let's talk about the due diligence clause because this is the one that most people will be really interested in it's the one that's probably uh, when, when I when I look at the stats of what people are searching for online it's the one most people uh, are looking for Talk to us about what goes into a really good due diligence clause. So a really good due diligence clause is drafted correctly and it's wide and it basically gives the purchaser in their sole discretion the ability to cancel the agreement. Uh, we can obviously give a clause, very. we have that standard wide uh, conditions, so we can provide that before signing. Agents will put it in. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. So I always think that is something you go to your go to your solicitor and get a wide due diligence condition. The Auckland District Law Society and REINZ they publish standard uh, clauses that you can put into the agreement, and they've got a really good wide due diligence condition. But weirdly, 
agent that don't always use it. Interesting. Well, what we'll do as well is that we'll uh, go track that clause down and put that in the show notes as well. So if you guys uh, at home listening want to see that, we'll swipe over the cover art, you'll be able to see that there. But sometimes it's even simple things like saying that this clause is for the, the, the complete benefit of the purchaser. And what that means, and we were discussing this before we hit record as well, that if, uh, if you have that wording within there, then the vendor can't come and then cancel the contract based based on that clause. Have we got that right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, also, the purchase, purchaser can choose to waive that condition if they if they don't want it in the, in the agreement anymore. And is there a minimum a minimum period of DD that that a purchaser should expect to have within there? Well, I think ten working days at least. Most of the conditions, the default conditions well generally they were 10 working days because the building inspection and the title gave us 10 working days to look at the title so that's about two weeks it's a pretty pretty good amount of time to do your investigation now that the building inspection and the limb are 15 working days if you don't want to be running around and putting pressure on your solicitor or just the fact that you you are going to want to look at the property file from the council and that might take some time ideally I love 15 working days and the whole reason that we're talking about due diligence in these clauses as well is that if you put a property under contract then you're able to go through these processes, you know, paying for and ordering the limb and paying for a building inspection. But you don't necessarily want to go through all of that cost and time and effort if you don't have a contract on the property anyway and you don't have the right to purchase it, which is, you know, just just for people who are, who are kind of new to buying and selling property, that's the reason why contracts are kind of structured in this way before you go unconditional. And in the past, over the last sort of, Five years, there were a lot of auctions. So obviously, auctions were really popular for a long period of time. And when you buy an auction, it's unconditional. You cannot, even if it turns out the title has got stuff on it that you don't like, like a covenant that you can't have pets, for example, you cannot pull out of it. And so, in that case, you are having to do uh, your building inspection, your due diligence, and order your limb before you go to auction. So you have a number of purchasers doing that, whereas now we're getting a lot more agreements by negotiation and you can put those conditions in and obviously you don't have to spend money until you know that that price has actually been accepted by the vendor. And I think that is fantastic news for purchasers as well. Now the last clause we're going to talk about uh, is is around KiwiSaver to use for your deposit. Now this isn't necessarily a a separate clause, but I I guess a clarification. Talk to us about this. Okay, so uh, over the last six months, Months, a lot, a lot of people are using KiwiSaver to be able to purchase a house with a HomeStart grant, especially when it's off the plans. They get a bigger grant, so that's great. The one thing uh, that can be really problematic is that when people want to use their KiwiSaver for a deposit, it takes time to witness the declaration for us to send the application off, and then the KiwiSaver provider pays within 10 working days, so you really need 15 working days from the date of signing to the payment of the deposit. And the other thing is that we cannot pay that KiwiSaver funds to a vendor solicitor unless they give us an undertaking that they're going to hold that till settlement. So in that case, it won't be released to the vendor and the vendor can't use it as a deposit for an on-sale. So ideally, we put that undertaking in the agreement up front so that means we don't have to negotiate with the solicitor during the conditional period. It's just easier for everyone and then you can definitely use your KiwiSaver as a deposit and we can definitely pay it over. 
Great. Now let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And if you want to learn more about property with Andrew and I, then check out our Epic Guide to Property Investment in New Zealand. Uh, All you have to do is Google property investment with a second or third thing that comes up. Click on there and it's a 16,000 word completely free guide. Don't even have to put in your email address where you can, uh, you know, read more about this and learn more about property. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Edward Knight. I'm Shelley for now. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insight to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time. <laughs>